take notes on that or follow along with some of the questions that are in there when we re refer to them in Sunday school. Anyone else need a book? Okay. Well, let's get started. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. We're back in the Answers Bible Curriculum. If you're new, I don't know if we have any new people today, but if you're new, this is our three-year chronological study through the Bible from Answers in Genesis. The goal of this study is to learn, or multiple goals, the goals are to learn what the Bible says, to become confident in defending what the Bible says and believing what the Bible says, and then applying what the Bible says into our lives so that we are changed. Remember, the Bible is designed to change us. We're called to become sanctified, to become holy, to become set apart. And how does God do that? He uses the scriptures, and he uses his Holy Spirit, giving us understanding of the scriptures to make us set apart, to change us. To remind you of where we've been so far in our study, in the first quarter, our theme was we can trust the Bible. The Bible is God-breathed. It's true. It's sufficient. It's always relevant. We can and we must use it as our set of glasses for assessing all data and truth claims that we encounter in the world. Furthermore, the Bible gives us a clear outline of history, which we divided into our seven C's of history. Let's see if we can remember those C's. What was the first? Creation, and when did that take place? Pro yeah, in the beginning, but what B.C. do we estimate? 4,004 or 4,000 B.C. And then what came next, and what date? Corruption, also around 4,000 B.C. Then the third C? Catastrophe, that's right, the flood, and what date was that? No, not 4,000. No, a little bit after 3,000. Yeah, very good, 2350 B.C. So about 1,650 years after creation, God judges the world with a flood. Soon after a catastrophe, we have our fourth C, which was confusion, confusion. And that takes place around close, not 2150. 2175, closer, 2240, 2240. So about 110 years after the flood. And then these are the seas that we have talked about, but there are three seas we haven't gotten to yet. What's the fifth sea? Christ, right. So we, we move very move a long way forward, and that would be around 3 BC. And then Christ's work on the cross is our sixth sea. And then what's our last sea? The consummation, which refers to a number of future events Christ's um, return, his setting up his millennial kingdom, the final rebellion, final judgment, all, all of those things. Those are our seven seeds of history. We saw that in the first quarter. We also saw in the first quarter a proper way to study the Bible, which we broke down into three steps. What are those steps? Yeah, Craig. Yeah, very good. What does it say? What does it mean? And, and how do we do it? Or to say it another way, observe, interpret, Apply. Just to fill that out, one little bit step more. Observe means to notice the various details of the passage and then of the context. To interpret means to collect those observations into conclusions. And then apply, translate your conclusions into changes in your own life. You're asking, how does it work? Because it does work. The Bible is showing you how it works. You just have to see how it works in your life, how it's supposed to be applied in your life. And we're going to be practicing that, of course, moving forward. That was all first quarter. In the second quarter, we saw that God is creator and redeemer. And we can trust the creation account given to us in Genesis as true, as straightforward, and as historical narrative. Even at the beginning of time, also we saw, after the fall, God's gospel was on display. The sinning pair were promised that one would come from the woman's seed who would crush their enemy, the serpent. And that seed would only receive a temporary wound from the serpent. And this is, of course, the first foreshadowing of whom? This is Christ. This is the Messiah, the promised one. So we focused on creation in the second quarter. And in the third quarter, our theme was God is faithful. God was faithful to his good character to judge sin by sending a worldwide devastating flood. 
God was faithful to honor his covenant after the flood when he promised never to send a similar flood to judge the earth and to preserve the earth's cycles despite man's continual wickedness. God also chose to make a unilateral covenant with Abraham, who was undeserving, just, just a man, a wicked man like all the rest, but God called him out. God made a covenant with him. This covenant also is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, because through Abraham, Abraham is promised that through his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And that, again, is a reference to Christ's work. So what will we, um, we've seen where we've been. What will we be looking at in this quarter? Well, here's a preview. Focusing a lot on what happens in Egypt. First six lessons, or, yeah, first six lessons more related to the other patriarchs besides Abraham. Lesson six, we're going to talk a little bit about chronology once again, so a little bit of referencing back to some of the things we talked about during the summer with Egyptian chronology and Mesopotamian chronology and how it compares with the Bible. And so Genesis takes a slightly different take than um, some of the scholars and archaeologists in the in the film that you watched, that we watched. But we'll talk about some of those differences when we get there. So the first six lessons about the patriarchs and going down into Egypt, and the final seven lessons are about coming out of Egypt, focusing on the exodus and coming into the promised land, or at least arriving at the promised land. We end with the spies, and you remember how that turns out. They don't actually go in right away. But that's where we're going to end our quarter and with some review. Questions about where we are going or where we have been? Okay, well today we are examining Genesis 24, the historical account of Rebekah becoming Isaac's wife. So we're continuing on with the patriarchs after Abraham. Now what does this have to do with our fourth quarter theme? Well, I don't know if I mentioned the fourth quarter theme, but our fourth quarter theme is God is in control. God is in control. That's our theme. What does this lesson have to do with that? God is in control. Well, we're going to start our class by doing an activity related to the timing of the events in chapter 24. And then we're actually going to read, observe, interpret the sections of Genesis 24, and then we'll conclude by asking ourselves how this account was written for our instruction. That is, how do we apply it? How do we apply its principles into our lives? Let's pray now. Great God, great King, great Father, We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can trust it. We thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you are the creator and that you do sustain the earth. Lord, instruct us now by giving understanding through your Holy Spirit on how you are so great and in control and so kind in your control and, Lord, how you are so faithful to your covenant with your people. Lord, this is a a delight This is a delightful passage. I pray that the people would be encouraged, that you'd help me to be able to explain it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, open your Bibles, please, to Genesis 24. This is our section for today. We will take quick glances to some of the passages around Genesis 24. Let's acquaint ourselves a little bit with the literary context. The last chapter that we studied together in Genesis was chapter 22, where we saw Abraham was tested by God when God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Abraham obeyed God. How? Because he believed God. He trusted that God could bring Isaac, who was a son of promise, who was the only way that Abraham was going to receive his promises. Abraham believed that God would bring Isaac back from the dead if he had to because God was going to be faithful to his promises. And God vindicated Abraham's faith. And he provided a substitute for Isaac. And Isaac was received back from the dead in a way. Notice, though, what appears at the end of Genesis chapter 22. Just move back a page or two in your Bibles. Look down to verses 20 to 24. Scan that for a moment. Soon after this ordeal, this test for Abraham, what news does he receive? He gets some news. What news does Abraham receive at the end of chapter 22? Yes, Sue? That's right. He heard that his relative 
had children. And this is going to be important for some of the events in chapter 24 and a number of children there. In chapter 23, Sarah dies. That's the main subject of that chapter. The, or she dies and Abraham looks for a place to bury her in Canaan. And he acquires some, acquires some land from the Canaanites there. That's chapter 23. Skip over chapter 24 for a second and look at chapter 25. Scan verses 1 to 11, beginning of the chapter. What two events are we told about in those verses? What two important events? Two events involving Abraham. Sarah has died. And what does Abraham do? Yeah, Julie. That's right. He, he remarried. He married another wife. You know, all the children that he had through this, this wife, he sent away. There's not going to be any confusion with who's going to inherit Abraham's inheritance, all his possessions. That's all going to Isaac. But what's the other thing that happens to Abraham? lives out the rest of his days, and he dies. And we see he's buried by his sons Isaac and Ishmael. So that's the, the literary context. That's, happening, that's what's happening around Genesis 24. We're going to be investigating the chapter of Genesis 24. Can we be specific, though, about the timing of Genesis 24? We've got its literary context. What about its chronological context? Can we be specific? Well, actually, yes. Like a true historian, Moses has again left us specific time details in the Genesis narrative so we can be pretty specific about when these, when chapter 24 takes place. We're actually going to investigate this a little bit ourselves with an activity. Take a look at these three questions. If you have the workbooks, you can look on page 11. The three questions are also there, and you can answer the questions in your book. But either by yourself or with a partner sitting next to you, see if you can find the answers to these three questions by looking at your Bibles. The first, how old was Isaac at the time of his mother's death? The second, how old was Isaac at his wedding to Rebekah? And then the third, how long was it before Rebekah bore children according to Genesis 25-26? So we're going to see that the details for answering these questions are actually in the Bible. So please investigate this, answer these questions, give you about two or three minutes, and then we'll come back together and talk about it. Look up when you're finished. Yes, Carol. It was not a sin. That's a great question, Carol. Was it a sin for Abraham to take another wife? It was not because his first wife had died. And the Bible permits remarriage whenever, um, whenever your spouse is no longer living. So Abraham was okay to do that.
Take another minute. Okay, if you didn't find all the answers, that's okay. We'll talk about it together. Had to do a little bit of math here. Hopefully that wasn't too strenuous. How old was Isaac when Sarah died? Oh, got something different. I hear some people saying 37. Anybody get something different? 27? 36? Okay, well, let's walk through the calculation and maybe see if we've gotten off. Because I have 31. All right. So Genesis 17, 17, um, it tells us that when Isaac was born, Sarah was how old? 90. She was 90 years old. And when Sarah dies, it says that she lived 127 years. Okay, I read 21 years, so yeah, I, I, I was the one off, but that's good. So she lived 127 years, which means how many years had gone by since Isaac was born? 37. So she would have been, so Isaac must have been 37 when she died. She was 90. 127 minus 90 gives you 37. Very good. 37 years old. So how old was Isaac at his wedding to Rebecca? What was it? Okay, why do I have 40 here? Okay, yeah. Isaac was, okay, the text tells us that he was 40. Okay, yeah. So that's not based on the first calculation. I was wondering if I had to change my answer. So yes, 40. Isaac was 40. So he was 37 when his mother died, and he was 40 when he married Rebecca. Last question, how long was it before Rebecca bore children to Isaac? 20 years, yeah. Isaac was 60 when he bore Jacob and Esau, as the, as the latter part of Genesis 25 tells us. But he was only 40 when they first got married, so 20 years must have gone by. That's kind of a long time. If you scan the passage a little bit in Genesis 25, you'll notice that barrenness or infertility was a problem for Isaac and Rebekah just as it was for Abraham and Sarah. It must not be very good genes or something, but God was going to providentially use that in their lives just as he did for their parents or for Isaac's parents. Isaac and Rebekah prayed to the Lord regarding children and then God answered their prayer and Rebecca bore children. By the way, how old was Abraham when Jacob and Esau were born? Bonus question. Hopefully my math is not wrong here. We know that he dies at 175. Genesis 25 tells us that. And he was 100 when Isaac was born. Yeah, so Abraham would have been 160 when his grandchildren were born, which means he saw Jacob and Esau. In fact, he even got to see them become teenagers, or I guess you could say adults. They became young men. Abraham got to see that. God allowed him to see that. So just kind of interesting. So combining this information with the chronogenealogies in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, we can estimate Isaac's marriage and the events of Genesis, Genesis 24 to have taken place approximately at 1915 B.C., 1915 B.C. All right, so again, seeing how the Bible gives us these, these details, especially these first books, that they are historical. And they have these time details just like a history, just as you would expect from a history. So let's start actually investigating the passage. Oh, any questions about... That activity, because I know I kind of may have confused you a little bit with the, the math. Confused myself with the math. Okay. Let's actually investigate the passage. It's a big chapter, so we don't have time to notice every detail, but we do need to make some observations of the passage. I also won't read through the whole thing, but we'll read through most of the beginning. Let's start with verses 1 to 8. So Genesis 24, verses 1 to 8. 
follow along with me as I read. Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please, place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife from my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife from my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this, my oath. Only do not take my son back there. I'll actually read the next verse too. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Okay, let's make some observations. Two people in this passage, Abraham and an unnamed servant. Even though the servant is unnamed, we do get some details about him. Two of them. What do we know about the servant? Yeah, Julie. That's right. He's the oldest servant in the household. And? That's right. He had charge of all of Abraham's possessions. He's the top servant. He's the most experienced, the oldest, the most responsible servant. Abraham calls him in. This isn't the first time, though, that Abraham's top servant is mentioned in the Bible. Back in Genesis 15, before Isaac was born, Abraham confessed to God that his heir was someone not of his bloodline. He told God, well, maybe you remember, whom did Abraham say was his heir? What was it? Eliezer. Eliezer of Damascus, Genesis 15, 2. O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. At that time, if you had no children, and you didn't have any relatives nearby, it was common for your heir to be the top servant of your household. Therefore, Eliezer would have been his top servant. Provided that Eliezer had not died between Genesis 15 and Genesis 24, Eliezer would be the servant mentioned here in this passage. He would be the old, experienced servant that Abraham calls in for a mission. But even if Eliezer had died, the new top servant would be the new next in line for the inheritance after Isaac. Yet Abraham commissions this next in line, this top servant, to act on behalf of Isaac. In fact, if the servant is successful in this mission, what will that do to the servant's chances of receiving Abraham's wealth? It erases it. If he's successful for Isaac, then there's no way he's going to receive Abraham's inheritance. Abraham tells his servant to place his servant's hand under Abraham's thigh. What is going on there? Well, the context should help us. This act must be a sign of what? Trust, pledge. What's happening here is really serious. And even aside from this this gesture, we know that things are serious because what does Abraham ask his servant to do? Exactly. He asks him to take an oath. And not just an oath, but an oath in, in light of God, of Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth. And Yahweh's name is not to be trifled with. And so we connect that with this gesture, and we can also think about it a little bit. The area under one's thigh is a very private area. That's a very intimate area. And he says, put your hand there and swear by the Lord to do what I command you. And we don't quite have a custom like this today, thankfully. But a somewhat similar custom, probably the closest thing we have to it, is swearing on the Bible. It's supposed to show that you're super serious about what you're about to do or what you're about to say. You're going to fulfill your word. Same thing is happening here. Abraham is sending his servant on a very serious mission, and he wants his servant to swear before the God of heaven and earth to obey and to be careful to do everything Abraham commands. Now, what charge, charge is, does Abraham give to his servant? Well, first, not to do something. What must the servant not do? Well, later he's going to say, do not take 
Isaac back to the land that I came from. But before that, he says, you must not do this. Yeah. That's right. Do not take a wife from my son from the Canaanites, the people among whom I dwell. You are not to do that. What must the servant do instead? He's got to take a wife for Isaac, but not from the Canaanites, but from where? Yes, yeah, Sue. That's right. Go to my relatives. Go to where they live, to my old country. Go to my relatives and take a wife from my relatives for Isaac. Now, look down at verse 10 for a moment. Where did Abraham's relatives live? They lived in Mesopotamia. Do you remember Canaan? This is right on the western side of Palestine. Mesopotamia would be to the northeast. You have to kind of go up and then over. And then you have that area of Mesopotamia. And specifically, they lived in the city of Nahor. Nahor is probably close to where Abraham's family uh, initially traveled. Whenever Terah moved from Ur, which would be the southeast portion, I guess southeast portion of Mesopotamia, then traveled northwest up to Haran. They're not living in Haran anymore, but they're living in a city called Nahor which is named after one of Abraham's relatives. So it's probably close by to Haran in northwest Mesopotamia. Now, how, just exactly how far of a trip is it from Canaan to Nahor? Well, probably about 400 to 500 miles one way. So that's going to be an 1,000-mile trip or 800 to 1,000-mile trip altogether. That's a big trip even by today's standards. To give you a, a little bit of an idea, this would about be the distance of, or from New York City to Columbus, Ohio. We might be able to do it in one day, but we have cars. Back then, they were using camels or other animals, so it was going to be a decently long journey there and back. It's not going to take years or months, but it's going to take a while. It's a long way. And at this charge, at this charge to go get a wife from his relatives in Mesopotamia, the servant anticipates a problem, potential problem. What might happen? Yeah, Eric. That's right. He might find a proper wife from his relatives, but she says, I'm not leaving. I don't want to go back with you. And what might this interested woman, however, suggest instead? (laughs) Bring him here. I mean, he can either live here, or at least I can see him, and then I'll decide whether to go with you or not. So the servant asks, should I take your son with me to this land? But Abraham's reaction is very poignant. How would you characterize his reaction? He doesn't just say no. It's emphatic, right? Beware that you do not take my son back there. Under no circumstances will that be a good idea. He's very emphatic. Don't take my son back to that land. Abraham then says two things to reassure his servant. Don't worry about this problem that you're thinking of. What two things does Abraham tell him to reassure his servant? What's one of them? You don't have to worry because? Yeah, Julie. That's right. The Lord is going to send his angel before you. The Lord's going to make this happen. And also, what does he also say? Yeah, Eric. Exactly. Just to make you feel better, if she refuses to come, you're free from your oath. But she's going to come, because the Lord's going to send his angel before you. Now the servant places his hand under Abraham's thigh, and he swears to do as Abraham commanded. Now let's pause here. We've made some observations. Let's ask some interpretive questions now. Two main ones. First, why doesn't Abraham want Isaac to marry one of the Canaanite women? I mean, it's pretty obvious to him that he does not want that to happen. Why is he so against that? That's right. Bill, I think you said it well. They will most likely lead him away from God. This is all about protecting Isaac from marrying an idolater. 
Now, we're not told this specifically, but I think this is, a, this is an inference that we can make based on other scriptures. In the later books of the Pentateuch, Moses says, speaking for God, or I'm not going to quote it specifically, but Moses warns Israel not to intermarry with the people of the land. Don't do this. Well, why? Is it because the people of the land were inferior or impure in race? No, not at all. Listen to what Deuteronomy says. Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 4. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. So it has not, it's nothing to do about, with ethnicity. It's about idolatry. Marrying a pagan will cause a snare to a person. Yeah, that's a great point, Bill. Thanks for mentioning that. Some may say that this is something about protecting the purity of the Messiah's bloodline, just repeating your comment, Bill. But we know that not everyone in the bloodline of the Messiah was Jewish. In fact, the principle is if one of these peoples, either from around Israel or even within the land that Israel was conquering, if they became a true follower of Yahweh, then a Jew could marry them. Because we actually see that. We see that was the situation for Rahab. Rahab in Jericho, she's a Canaanite, but she becomes a follower of God. She fears the Lord, and she becomes part of the line of the Messiah. And then, as Bill alluded to, Ruth, the Moabite, this would be one of the pagan peoples outside of Canaan, she marries Boaz. That was a permitted marriage. That was a celebrated marriage. Why? Because she was a follower of Yahweh. The Bible consistently prohibits intermarrying or interworshipping with those who deny the true God and Savior. And this is said in the New Testament as well. You know the verses. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. What partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Yes, Roy. Yeah, that's another great point, Roy. Uh, I'll mention that. I'll repeat your comment. Great example of this snare in action is Solomon, because we're specifically told it's because he married many wives, but particularly wives that were not followers of God, that his heart was turned away from following God. He did not follow the Lord wholeheartedly, and God, of course, had to chasten Solomon because of that. Yeah, Steve. Yeah, that's another great point, Steve, uh, to repeat your comment a little bit. I think that's another consideration in all this, is that marrying a Canaanite would have confused God's promise, God's covenant with Abraham, because it's like, well, are they the indigenous peoples who God said he was going to take the land away from them and give it to Abraham? Now they're kind of there, too. They're kind of inheritors, too, or at least they have a claim on it because they'd be intermarrying into into um, the line of Abraham. So I think that's there too, but certainly one of the main considerations is he's, he doesn't want, he knows it's very important to not let his son marry someone who's going to drag him down in idolatry. Now another question, and perhaps related. Why is Abraham so much against his servant taking Isaac to Mesopotamia? Why at all costs as you say, don't let that happen. Yes, Steve. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think you're right, Steve. Again, we're not told this specifically, but I think we can make a good inference here. There's the potential if Isaac leaves Canaan and goes to Mesopotamia that he's going to be distracted from the covenant promises of God. He will be distracted from following God or may miss out on the blessings of the covenant that God has made with Abraham. Because consider, and Abraham even repeats this, when God called Abraham in Haran, what did he specifically tell Abraham to do? Leave your family, leave the land that you're living in now, and go to Canaan. So having Isaac go to Mesopotamia would have been a step backwards, going back to the family that God called him out from, going back to the land that God called him out from. And Isaac might even be persuaded to stay in that land. It's worth noting that Abraham himself is not willing to make the journey. Now, he's old, but I don't think we should say he's infirm because he lives for another 35 years. It's unlikely the reason he didn't go was infirmity. It's more, I think, a commitment to God's covenant. He doesn't want to be distracted from that. I think there's also a parallel to the Israelites here because they were tempted to often go back to where they came from, right? Or at least on their way to the promised land. We should go back to Egypt. Roy, yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's another good point, Roy. Some of these warnings that we're, that we're seeing from Abraham, we actually see them play out in the next generation. Esau marries Canaanites, and it says that his parents are really grieved at that. But another thing is we see Jacob actually goes to live in Mesopotamia. He goes to live with Laban, and it leads to a bunch of problems, like some of the rivalry that you were just discussing, Roy. Maybe um, Abraham was aware of that, and in wisdom he says, I don't want him to be put in that situation where the family might, um, there might be some rivalry over over wealth, over inheritance. Yeah, that's a good point. So we have some, some good reasons to infer as to why Abraham did not want these things to happen. Why it was important not to take a wife from the land and not to travel to Mesopotamia, or not to have Isaac travel to Mesopotamia. Let's read on, though. Let's see what happens. Chapter 24, let's look at verses 10 to 14. The servant makes the journey. Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his master's in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. He said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, drink, and I will water your camels also, may she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Stop there for a second. Make some more observations. The servant and his entourage, he's got other men with him. We see that later in the passage. They arrive outside the city of Nahor. It's been a long journey. It's toward evening time. And he prays to God. Now, for what does the servant ask God? Generally, what does he ask at first? He's going to ask for something more specific, but first he just asks for success. Grant me success. And he also comes up with a plan. He incorporates this plan into his prayer. He asks God to point out the right woman by when he asks a question, the woman responding by offering him a drink and by offering to water all his camels. Now, normally, how likely was it to occur that a woman would respond in this way? Hi, Carol. Um, no, this is not Miriam here. This is Rebecca. Miriam is, uh, that's with Moses and uh, Exodus. But how likely was a woman to do what, what he has in mind. Very unlikely. Why? It's not an easy task. That's a lot of work. 
Now, perhaps, if he said, could you grant me a drink of water, she might permit him a drink. I mean, it's not too much water, and the spring's right there. If he drinks a lot, she could just fill it up again relatively easily. That politeness wouldn't cost too much. But watering ten camels? Camels can drink a lot. That means a lot of drawing water from the spring, taking it out, pouring it into the trough, and then going back to the spring. This is not something that can be done quickly. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of sweat. And she doesn't even know this guy. Therefore, there's little chance that the average woman would do this, much less offered to do this without being asked. But what kind of woman might actually do it? Regular women wouldn't do this. Yeah, a, a woman who has a servant's heart, a very hospitable woman, a generous woman, a compassionate woman would do this. You could say, or oh, maybe just God would simply move her. Maybe she's not like that normally. But if we just if we go past the miraculous, if she was a compassionate, generous woman, she would do this. And that kind of woman would make a good wife. So the servant asks God to point out the woman by having her dis- display this extravagant and rare generosity to him, a stranger. Now, was this the only way that the servant could have identified a wife for Isaac. Well, if we think about it, no. In fact, remember, Abraham's directions were merely to go to his relatives. The servant could have asked around the city for the relatives of Nahor or Bethuel and then found their dwelling place and then checked to see if any of their daughters were unmarried. This would have been a much more normal and perhaps more practical way to fulfill the command, the oath from Abraham. So why does the servant ask God for something more extraordinary? Well, notice how the servant ends his prayer. He says, by this I will know. What will he know? Yeah, Magda. That's right. I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. I will know that this is your special loving kindness to him. And remember, Abraham had said to his servant, the Lord will send his angel before you. So based off of that promise, the servant asked God for something special. If you will it, God, do something unexpected to confirm your loving kindness to Abraham. Do something extraordinary. May it even be that the woman I speak to at this spring, who shows great hospitality, be the relative that I was sent to get. I think that's what's going on here. As we see later in the passage, the servant is ready for God not to do this. When he ends up meeting with the family, he says, can I take her back as wife for Isaac? If not, let me know so I know which way to turn. So he's ready. He's ready for God not to do this. But through this prayer, the servant gives God opportunity to demonstrate special covenant kindness. Let's read what happens. Verses 15 to 27. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. That girl, or the girl, was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels in gold and said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me. Is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again she said to him, We have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. Then the man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. This is amazing. Let's make some observations. How quickly did God answer the servant's prayer? Immediately. Before he had finished speaking, the woman is coming towards the spring. 
Rebecca does exactly as the servant prayed. She gives him a drink and then offers to water to give water for all his camels. And did you notice how she did it? What stands out about the way, or what stands out about how she did it? Yeah, Dwayne. Yeah, twice it uses the word quickly, and it also mentions that she ran. She quickly lowered her jar, quickly entered into the trough, and ran back to get more water. That is not half-hearted generosity. This is sincere. And notice verse 16. It says that she went down to the spring and then came up. Down to and came up. Imply what about the location of the spring? It's at a lower elevation, which means that she would have to get to it by going down a hill or by taking some stairs, whatever was nearby. And then she would have to ascend back that direction. So not only is she running and moving quickly, but she's doing incline and decline work while carrying a jar, sometimes full of water. Not only is this woman generous, and she is hardworking, but she is probably physically fit as well. Because she's demonstrating some athleticism here. Now what is the servant doing while all this is happening? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's amazed. I like MacArthur when he talked about this passage. He's like, it says he was sitting there in silence, but he probably had his jaw dropped open too. Because it was pretty amazing. But yeah, he's just watching. Just watching in silence. Now, we might expect that he would have immediately been like, ah, oh, the Lord answered my prayer. But there's something he doesn't know yet. What doesn't he know yet? He doesn't know if she's from the right family. So he sees what looks like an answer to his prayer, but he wants to see it confirmed. He needs to find out a little bit more information. But right now, or while she's doing it, he's just watching amazed. When she finishes, he gives her a nose ring and two gold bracelets. And the servant asks two questions. To which family do you belong? And can you give us lodging? Well, she then reveals that she is Abraham's relative. And not only do they have lodging for him and his men, but they also have food and places for all of his animals. So even more generosity being outpoured here. Even more hospitality being shown here. And she still doesn't know precisely who this man is. She may have maybe a little bit of idea that he's, he's an okay guy because of the, the gifts that he gave her, showing his intentions were, were good. But this is a lot of generosity for a guy you don't know. And how does he react to, the, to those statements from her. Yeah. He just stops everything, bows down, and worships the Lord, and praises the Lord. He pronounces a blessing on the Lord and confor- confirms out loud that the Lord has answered his prayer and shown loving kindness to his master because he brought him to exactly the right woman, to the, the relatives that he was sent to find. And what a woman! Consider what we've learned about her so far that makes her just an amazing bride for Isaac. She's hardworking. She's generous. She's strong. She's of the right household. And we also learn she's very beautiful. She's unmarried, and she's a virgin. This is, this is better than he could have asked for. This is like a Proverbs 31 woman. He couldn't have asked for a better bride from God for Isaac And so what he acknowledges is that this is God's covenant kindness on display toward Abraham and to his descendants. We won't read the next section of this chapter, but I'll summarize it for you. Rebecca, now that she knows that this servant serves her kinsmen, she runs back to tell her family. Laban hears it. Laban's her brother. He runs out, continues the outstanding hospitality, urging the servant and his men to come in and lodge. They go to the house, the ten animals are all provided for, a meal is set before the servant and his accompanying men, but he refuses to eat. He has to explain his mission. He relates to the family Abraham's situation and all that had transpired, and he asks if they will allow him to take Rebekah back to be the wife of Isaac. The family confesses that what has happened is clearly of the Lord, and they consent. The servant again bows and worships the Lord. This says, wow, God's loving kindness is so much on display. Servant then unloads the caravan of camels and gives many treasures to the family. Or in other words, he pays the bride price. Well, why a bride price? Well, remember, in those days, losing a family member due to marriage was losing part of the family's workforce. So it was customary for the husband's family to pay money or give gifts to offset that financial loss. So Abraham's servant is doing just that, giving various gifts to Rebecca's family, articles of silver, articles of gold, 
garments, other precious objects. Now, this is a very happy time now for the, the family there. Rebecca has just secured a great marriage with a wealthy man and a kinsman, and the family has been handsomely compensated. But the next morning, the servant asks if he may leave with Rebecca. And the family had not expected this. They had not expected such a quick departure. They're likely never going to see Rebecca again. And perhaps they had some, some celebration plans, so they asked for ten more days with Rebecca. But the servant, ever committed to his master's will, and not his own, requests that this God-blessed mission not be slowed down. The family decides to ask Rebecca what Rebecca would like to do. And Rebecca says that she's ready to leave now. So the family blesses her, sends her on her way with her nurse and a number of other maids, and the caravan then sets out on the 500 or so mile trip back to Canaan. Let's read the last verses of the chapter, verses 62 to 67. Now Isaac had come from going to Bear Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done, Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is just really amazing. What amazing history here. It's like a a Disney princess story. This hardworking, beautiful girl, living with her family, doing normal everyday tasks, And suddenly a servant arrives and tells her that a rich prince wants her to be his bride. Let's ask just a few more interpretive questions. Or let's ask a few more interpretive questions. The first being the most important. What's the point of all this? What is the point of this passage? I mean, it is interesting and all, but why did Moses write this? Why did God have him write it and include it in the book of Genesis? What do you think? Yeah, Magda. Yeah, it's definitely emphasizing that God is in control. What else? It's not simply that God is in control, but that because he's in control, you can trust him to be good to you. Right? Because I think the servant is the one who really clues us into what, Abraham's servant really clues us into, I think, the takeaway from this passage. He says that this is how God determined to show loving kindness to Abraham. All this was written down for us, I believe, for us to understand more about our covenant God. Look at the way he keeps his promises. Just look at how he shows care for those in covenant with him. He provided Abraham with a servant who was delighted to do his master's will and sought his master's benefit even if it meant personal loss for the servant or the foregoing of various comforts. That's what God provided. God also provided an exceptional wife for Abraham's son and arranged circumstances in such a way that not only was the wife available, but she was ready and willing to come to Canaan. This is the kind of God, Moses would have been telling the Israelites, this is the kind of God that you are covenanted with. You're going into Israel. You're going into this unknown situation. But you can trust God to be in control and to always be doing good for you. You can trust that he's going to honor his covenant and he's going to continue to show you covenant kindness. Look what he did for Abraham. He will also do likewise for you. This would have been encouraging to them. To believe the Lord's promises. To obey him to trust him. Well, what about us? Let's talk now about our own application. Isn't this message also important for us to hear? Perhaps you're wondering if God will keep his promises to you, whether he will honor his covenant to take care of you in every way, giving you your daily bread, giving you people to help you through hard times, 
helping you to endure through suffering and persecution, or yes, even providing you with a spouse. Will God take care of me? Will God keep his promises? Well, what is God's message to you through Moses here in this passage? You can trust God. He is in total control of everything. He knows your needs, and he delights to do you good because of the covenant that he made with you, a unilateral covenant. Look at how he provided for Abraham and Isaac. Extravagant loving kindness. The same God, if you truly know him, if you're part of his covenant, will show you such kindness. Therefore, don't doubt his wisdom. Don't doubt his ability. Don't doubt his love. Believe and watch how the Lord provides. Now, I'm not saying that the Lord won't allow difficulties. As we already saw later on, barrenness is going to be a big problem for this couple. That was good, though. God was going to use that to refine them, just as he allows difficulties to refine us. He's still doing us good. And neither am I saying that God will provide for you the exact same way he provides for someone else. You might not have the exact same provision as Abraham and Isaac in this passage, but it will be of the same kind. It will still be with that powerful covenant kindness of God. God does something unique with each person, but we see his faithfulness. And therefore, we can believe promises like Psalm 8411. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You say, well, I don't have this. The other person has that. Well, it's not good for you because he doesn't withhold anything good from those who walk uprightly. And Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. God is a God of covenant love and kindness. If you've been brought into the covenant through Christ's saving grace, then you are an object of God's constant love, his constant covenant kindness. And let these truths be a fortress to you when your flesh tries to tell you otherwise, because it will. It will say, hey, look at your circumstances. God obviously doesn't care about you anymore. His loving kindness has stopped. Well, we look at this passage and we say, no, I know the kind of God that I'm in covenant with. Don't miss out on another important aspect of this text. What was it that caused Abraham's servant to see God's great covenant kindness in an astounding way? What was it that the servant did? Edwin. He prayed. He prayed. There's a lot of application here about prayer. Do you want to see God displaying his kindness and glory in your life? Then pray. And as God answers your prayers, respond just as Abraham's servant did. Respond in worship. One final question. Kind of like on the side. Should we pray for specific signs of God's choice, like the servant did here? Well, in some ways, the answer is yes. If you are, for example, trying to discern whether a certain person is good for you to pursue in marriage, it is good for you to pray to the Lord for observable evidence of that person's character to see if she, he or she really lines up with what the Bible says you ought to look for in a spouse. Asking for the ability to see clearly in a situation is good. That's a good thing to pray for. But on the other hand, we should not ask for miraculous or seemingly miraculous signs to know God's will. Remember the difference between prescriptive and descriptive writing in the Bible. Just because someone does it does not necessarily mean that you should too. Because God sometimes is doing something special with a particular person. And he certainly was doing something special with Abraham, Abraham's servant, and Rebekah. God's angel had specifically gone ahead of Abraham's servant. There was a special promise here. This was a special act of God. We should not expect God to be working in the exact same way for us today. As I've said before, God has not promised to speak to us through circumstances, vague feelings, dreams, or visions. All of these are highly interpretive and ultimately unverifiable. But God has promised to speak to us through his word, through his scriptures. So if you want to know God's will about whom you should marry, what profession you should pursue, what church you should attend, where you should live, or whatever it is, listen to God's word. Pray for understanding and then apply its principles. It's God's will for you to learn and then practice wisdom.
Questions or comments about what you've heard today? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Bill. I'm trying to distill the, the main points of what you just said. Can you just re repeat the main ideas? Yeah, 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 that's good. Now let me repeat your comment. So even when we are looking for to apply wisdom in certain situations, um, and we're looking for the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, looking for the, the, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to be applied, it's never going to contradict what's, what's declared in the Bible. The Holy Spirit's not going to contradict himself. So whatever we do, it should not contradict. Whatever we believe or whatever, what, however we act, it's always got to be in line with what has already been revealed in the scriptures. Other questions or comments? Well, we've covered the workbook applications questions in the lesson today, so we're not going to revisit those. Let me end today by showing you our new memory verse. Remember, recall that our Answers Bible curriculum has two memory verses a quarter, and they're for the same for all age groups to learn. So if you want to encourage your kids to learn their memory verse, and you want to be a good example to them, well, then please memorize this with me. In the previous quarters, I had a day at the end of the quarter or in the middle of the quarter for reciting memory verses. I'm not going to do that going forward. This is simply for you. This is for your own edification. This is for your children's edification. If you want to do it, great. Please do. Our first memory verse this quarter fits with the theme of today's lesson. God continually shows covenant kindness to his people, even through what seems like evil circumstances and difficulties. We'll talk more about the specific circumstances surrounding these verses in our coming lessons, but you probably already know this is Joseph speaking after he's been exalted to the highest position in Egypt. So our verse is Genesis 50, verses 19 to 20. Um, we're going to try and memorize it in the New King James Version. Keep it consistent with the classes and the, and the handouts that we have for this curriculum. I'm just going to read it, and then we'll close in prayer. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you met evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Let's pray. God, you are great. Your constant covenant kindness is just so mind-blowing, God. This, what you accomplished for Abraham and Isaac is just astounding. And yet, God, I think we can testify in our own lives just other examples of your astounding kindness. Lord, I think many, many of us married can, can say the same things about our spouses. Just, wow, God, I can't believe you provided such an amazing spouse for me. And Lord, just other things with our, with our situations or with this church or with the, the, the people around us. Lord, you have provided so greatly. Your kindness has been so on display. And even with the hard things that we go through, God, later when we, when we are thinking clearly and when we're reflecting on the principles of your scripture, we say, wow, God is being so kind to me. And God, I can think about that for my own life, and I know many people here can as well. Just the way that you train us and the way that you discipline us, God. You are being so kind. Thank you for being such a kind God whose loving kindness is everlasting. Lord, show, uh, allow us to revel more in that today in this worship service and allow us to encourage one another in this. In Jesus' name, amen.